VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! You can call the music of low slowcore, but you also have to call it hypnotic and entrancing. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. We welcome the Minnesota band Low and review the new Spaghetti Western album by Danger Mouse. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. I'm walking paradox. No, I'm not. Threesome. Can try ceratops. Reptar. Rapping as I'm mocking deaf rock stars. Wearing synthetic wigs made of anwars. Dreadlocks. Bedrock. Harder than a Flintstone. Making crack rocks out of fish bones. This Jasper trying to get grown. About five, seven of this is in my bedroom. Swallow the cinnamon. I'm a scribble this shinage. My Sid is telling me that she's been getting intimate with men. Sid, shut up. The number to my therapist, you tell him all your problems, he's awesome with listening. You're listening to a little bit of the song Yonkers from the new album Goblin by an artist called Tyler the Creator. Greg, that's a name that probably isn't familiar to many of our listeners. However, they're going to be hearing a lot of it, and the group that Tyler is part of, Odd Future Wolfgang Kill Them All, in the coming months, because I don't think any other hip-hop collective has gotten as much attention in the last decade as Odd Future. Came together in 2007 in Los Angeles around this very charismatic young man, Tyler Okanama, talented producer and rapper. A lot of his friends are part of this collective. They've put out a lot of music, all for free, on the Internet. Goblin is the first official release from this collective, and it's a Tyler solo album, his second. It's on the XL Recordings label, and it just debuted at number five on the Billboard Albums chart. 45,000 copies sold in week one, which is impressive considering this is a group that has built its reputation by giving away its music for free. They're on tour have played some very high-profile gigs. The Coachella Music Festival in uh, California, they were part of the South by Southwest Music Conference. They will play a key role at the Pitchfork Music Festival in Chicago this summer. A couple of those gigs in recent weeks have ended in chaos. This is a group that prides itself on one of the most chaotic stage shows since the Sex Pistols at the height of punk rock. This is going to be a growing phenomenon, in part because the music is considered Horror core. Now that is a title that Tyler and his friends all disavow, but it's the closest we can come to describing it. Based on the early, most shocking days of Eminem, that's a clear influence, we could compare it to death metal. Songs about rape and murder, and there's a lot of emphasis on the new level of homophobia and misogyny in this group. The problem with using shock as a tool in art is that you always have to push the envelope further to get a rise out of people. The Odd Future Collective proudly says this is music made to tick off middle-aged white people, and they're doing a good job, although their audience largely is is young white hip-hop fans. Goblin 
is not something we can play for people because most of it, the language is unairable. And I think it's problematic for two reasons, Greg. Number one, you can make great art out of very troubling subject matter. Alfred Hitchcock made Psycho about a serial killer. You can also make Saw 4, which is just torture porn. I think Tyler's violence against women fantasies are on that level, just not artistic. The problem with him as an artist is that his musical backings are really creative, and Goblin has its musical moments, but lyrically, it's troublesome because of the shock value, which, as I said, is a very cheap tool, and also because of the kind of solipsism. It's a long conversation between Tyler and his therapist where he keeps whining about how miserable his life is, and that's why he wants to strike out. You mentioned punk rock, Jim, earlier, and I I totally agree with that as part of the appeal of this band. I think it's not so much the hip-hop community that they're coming out of as much the avant-garde or punk rock lineage, and that's appealing to a lot of young white listeners, as you said, you know, late teens, early 20s, feeling a lot of the same things that Tyler, the creator, is feeling and going through. This is a culture that's been raised on really violent video games and really violent slasher movies. This plugs right into that sort of appeal. There's artistry going on here. Tyler clearly wants to be perceived as an artist. He wants to have a career that lasts more than a year or two. He wants to make records that are going to stand the test of time. There are moments of vulnerability on the Goblin record. There are moments of great artistry. I love some of the way those backing tracks combine the punk and avant-garde influences with hip-hop. But as you said, the big stumbling block here is the shock value. Shock has an enormous appeal to a very specific audience for a very short period of time. But can you transcend that? You mentioned Eminem. 11, 12 years ago, started out as a shock artist. Then he gives you a song like Stan with some vulnerability, some extra introspection in it that takes it beyond that cult audience and into the mainstream. Tyler has not made that track yet. It'll be interesting to see if he does, but on this record, it's a very specific audience that he's speaking to, and the question remains, can he transcend it with subsequent releases? You're listening to a little bit of the northern Minnesota band Low, a track called Sunflower from their 2001 album, Things We Lost in the Fire. One of nine mostly brilliant albums from this group that was started by Alan Sparhawk on guitar and vocals and his wife, Mimi Parker, on drums and vocals two decades ago. They're joined on their current tour by Steve Garrington on bass and Eric Pollard on keyboards, but Sparhawk and Parker are the core of this group, and they have perfected a sound. You know, at one time I thought of them as the slowest, quietest band on earth, and I meant that in the most complimentary way. They've made a series of beautiful albums, then started tinkering with their sound over the last few years. Drums and Guns in 2007 was a very pointed commentary on the war in Iraq, and now they've released a new album called Come On, which is a bit of a return to what they sounded like in their early days. In between, Alan spent uh, a lot of time working on a very fine band known as Retribution Gospel Choir. We're very happy to have them in because we want to talk to Alan and Mimi not only about their music, but working together as a married couple in a rock band over the last couple decades, and also the fact that they are practicing Mormons and how they are able to incorporate a lot of that spiritual and religious imagery into their music with a great deal of subtlety. So there was a lot to talk about when we recently sat down with them in our studio. Welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. Yes, yeah, long time coming, much. I guess. Alan Mimi, this band had a unique sound almost from day one. Came up in the middle of the alternative rock era. Remember that? Back in the early 90s. And yes. Uh, yes. you guys sounded like no one else. Mm-hmm. Was it s- strictly a case of, you know, if we're going to be a band, we might as well do uh, something completely different? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I had played in more rock bands, but felt felt my interests and sort of my curiosity was more with minimalism and very simple stuff, some of the more simple things from, say, uh, Velvet Underground or Joy Division. And uh, yeah, it was more or less very against the grain of what was going on at the time, but that was sort of part of the 
challenge and the fun. I think kind of being true to that time to me meant more about doing something new and the freedom and the sort of the public that was suddenly aware of what could be done at the time, early 90s. How did it go over up in <laughs> beautiful northern Minnesota? Well, it's, you know, our first show, we played in Duluth for about, what, 10, 15 people. And some of them stayed. Some, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now by the time we'd written a couple songs and then played our first show and had a few people really react to it, we knew we were onto something. Yeah, the atmosphere was uh, at the time, you know, grunge, Nirvana, Soundgarden, mm-hmm. really yeah. loud, aggressive. Yeah. You guys come in really quiet and slow and moody and atmospheric and melodic. Playing a lot of the same clubs that all those bands were playing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the noisier bands. And later on in your career, you obviously proved that you could play loud and aggressive music. But Mimi, at the time, was it more a case of we're just happier doing this? My history, you know, my parents listened to country music and... This is kind of the music that I think comes pretty natural to me. Not that I don't like to rock out, but that is more of a more stretch. Yeah, choir. for my personality. Has it ever been an albatross around your necks? Because as Greg said, when we look back now on this, what, nine-album career, there are, are explosive moments, and there are very experimental sure. moments, and there are very mm-hmm. quiet moments. But the phrase, slow core, is sure. hung on you guys. You know, you're the inheritors of what Galaxy 500 had done sure. uh, at the end of the indie era. Sure, sure. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, people are always going to need sort of simple definitions of what's going on and subdivisions, you know. Black metal, slow core. <laughs> you, know, you know what you're getting into. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. We don't loathe it as much as maybe people think we do. We don't refer to ourselves in that way. No, though, we don't refer to but... ourselves necessarily. But, but as long as they're talking about you, right? Yeah, as long that, as that's all, Yeah, that's all you need. Well, if there was a premium put on certain things, what were they? Well, um, minimalism for sure. Mm-hmm. And from that, sort of the drive to try to get as much of the essence of a song or sort of the spirit of a song in there with as little going with, on with, as, with as little yeah. going on as possible simple melodies very simple lyrics early on it just really struck us as a, as a very good vehicle for the spirit or the vibe of mm-hmm. certain a certain vibe that that would just sort of happen when we stepped into that realm and and you know after a while it became very natural to us we toured a lot over the years, and that ethic sort of just becomes more ingrained. And, you know, different times in our career, we would be even further down that road. I mean, there were times early on where we were playing songs that were five minutes on the record for eight and ten minutes long without adding anything because mm-hmm. we, were, we were actually playing that much slower. <laughs> and it's it was just, Ooh, it was a certain was envelope. Tough. Yeah, it was weird. But <laughs> I think you were the first band that I encountered that probably had to have a writer who allow people to bring pillows, pillows. into shows. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, sir, you can't bring that pillow in here. But it's low. But it's low. Part I mean, of their deal, part of their contract, right? I'm going to need to sleep at some point during the show. It's nice playing places that people can sit down, and there were years where we would play really, even the dingiest club people would decide to just sit down on the floor. But I don't know, you can't get too precious about the way people react to you. And if you, know, if you try to say shut up or... or Come yeah, on, let's get rowdy. It never we've works. Ever, we've never told anybody to shut up. <laughs> and you have worked with an amazing string of collaborators, producers. Steve Albini, yep. Dave Fridman, lately mm-hmm. Matt Beckley, who people may not know. What's what's the lineage there, Alan? <laughs> um, Matt is actually the son of Jerry Beckley, who's in a band called America. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And uh, as you'd expect, growing up in L.A., he he's a musician, come producer, mixer, He's worked with everything from us to Britney Spears to uh, Avril Lavigne, uh, Switchfoot. Is that mm-hmm. the one? Yeah, Switchfoot. Yeah, I think he's got. He's actually got a gold record on his wall from that one. So you got this this highfalutin pop producer working <laughs> with you guys. What what were you looking for? Well, the we perversity were... I think was probably what initially was. Yeah, a happy Hollywood ending. Yeah. <laughs> It's perverse. I just thought, you know, we've worked with a lot of a, a real variety of people, and we've always we always enjoy. I mean, the more the more intense they are, and the more of a signature they put on it, the more interesting it is to us. So, why not go with someone that extreme? You know, we didn't go in there saying, okay, let's we want these to sound like Kesha, <laughs> though he could have, he could have for sure. Probably would have taken a little less time, but. Uh, <laughs> 
but uh, it's a pleasure to work with people who have spent that much time and understand and know more than you mm -hmm. and, and watch, watch them make things, make things jump out. Well, what do you say we give people a sense of what we're talking about? Are you going to play something from the new album, or what are you going to give us? Yeah, let's do, let's do a new song. It's the first song from the record called Try to Sleep. That was Try to Sleep by Lowe, live on Sound Opinions. We've got more of the band in the studio after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later on, Jim and I are going to review a surprising new concept album by Danger Mouse.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with Greg Cott, and we've been talking with members of the band Low. Alan Sparhawk on guitar, Mimi Parker on drums, Steve Garrington on bass, and Eric Pollard on keyboards. Since Alan and Mimi formed the group in 1993, they've gained a wide following. In fact, you just heard a little of Lowe's song, Monkey, as performed by none other than the golden god of rock, Robert Plant. He included two of the band's tracks on his recent album, Band of Joy, and he has said of their music, it's always been in the house playing beside Jerry Lee Lewis and Howlin' Wolf. Greg, that is an endorsement if ever I heard one. So during our conversation, I had to ask Alan about having such a famous fan. I've heard via a few people that have worked with Robert that he's fairly into new music and really goes out of his way to find new stuff. Uh, I was just talking to John Langford, and he said that when he met him, Robert had mentioned some <laughs> really obscure record that John yeah. had done that he had at home that he liked. liked Don't you it. love the idea of, of the golden god of Led Zeppelin the sitting around god. playing Mekon's records, Langford, mm-hmm. and playing low music? <laughs> yeah. Oh, if I could tell you how much he scared me the first time I heard Black Dog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I seriously thought that Beelzebub himself was was about to take me over. <laughs> but uh, it turns out he's a real, real nice guy. <laughs> An okay guy. Hey, hey, mama said the way you move gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove. Let's talk about the goal of this record. You know, Drums and Guns... 2007 is a very political album. Greg and I were big fans of it. It was the record that was needed at that time, it seemed like, in the, in the midst of these wars. We were trying. Mm, yeah. <laughs> we were trying. I think a lot, of, a lot of artists were trying. And I've read quotes where you guys have said, Come On is an album of love songs. Yeah, a lot more intimate, a lot more kind of talking to one person instead of struggling with trying to talk to everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mim and I are married, and we sing together a lot. I think there's there's sort of maybe a certain perception around us that because we're married and stuff, but I don't know, we're not real big, obvious love song writers until maybe mm-hmm. more recently. And it's not so much love as much as, I don't know, intimacy. The songs feel like stuff you would say to someone you've been through a lot with. Mimi, how many kids do you guys have now? We have two kids. How does that impact? Because you still go out on the road for long stretches and you play hard, you play live. Mm-hmm. Is that tough? Well, you know, it, I'll tell you. Right when we're leading up to leaving, there's a lot of anxiety in the house. You know, the kids are starting to get kind of emotional because we don't take them as much mm-hmm. on the road. You know, they're both in school, 11 and 6. So so everybody starts to get a little emotional and a little separation anxiety starts to... But, you know, we get through that and, yeah. you know, <laughs> kind of as soon as everybody's out the door on their way... Everybody's they're happy having and, a good time already. Yeah, back They've to forgotten their... about us. <laughs> Are there like grandparents or who? who uh, well, the... you know, I have a good friend who mm. moves into the house and mm-hmm. takes over, so they don't miss a beat. They treat her like they treat me, so yeah. I know they're happy. Well, we won't tell anybody, but it's kind of a vacation for you guys, isn't it? Uh... You know, I didn't want to say anything, but woohoo! No. <laughs> mm-hmm. In terms of recording this new record, maybe back to a little bit more of that quieter sound. Mimi, did you guys get feel any pushback because you did take some chances in terms of what people perceive Low to be with The Great Destroyer, a, a much more aggressive record, and Drums and Guns, a more experimental record? You know, we've found that our fans have been pretty accepting of what we've done. But, you know, we were told years ago by Wayne Coyne that you get a new fan base every seven years. Mm. So I'm not sure if that's true or not. But. And Wayne knows all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was right before they put out the soft bulletin. That's, Wayne, that, that. that's Wayne's excuse not to play any of the Flaming Lips good albums oh, anymore. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 Ouch. So it, it was more a thing internally that the band felt like it needed to do this as opposed to, like, what are the fans going to think? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's always that, that's been the case with all the, the records we've done. You know, you really get, can get yourself into a hole if you start trying to second guess what the people are going to want to hear. Mm-hmm. I felt after doing Great Destroyer and then especially Drums and Guns, we were sort of reaching at a certain extreme. Drums and Guns especially was very uh, intentionally messed up. I mean, mm-hmm. we took these songs and intentionally took away the instruments that we would normally use and intentionally made the arrangements cold and a little bit more 
hard. And I think after doing that very intentional messing with the songs, this time we went in the opposite direction and just let the songs go. After doing the record, listening to it, I realized one time, I realized that there's no dissonance on it. (laughs) There's Mm. no noise. It's a very easy record to swallow, as horrible as that sounds, but but uh our easy yeah. listening <laughs> I, I guess maybe just an attitude i i, yeah. I felt like but you know we were be- very before, egotistical on before drums and every but. record that we record alan always will say you know we need to do we need to make this really difficult and make this really so you know but it doesn't always it never works yeah it never works he's always got this idea but i guess i kind of say well you know there's nothing wrong with putting out a pretty record mim won this time yeah i won well how about another song yeah, let's try All this right. one. Let's do. Let's do it. Uh, you see everything. You see everything.
You See Everything by Low on Sound Opinions, Alan Sparhawk, Mimi Parker, Steve Garrington on bass, and Eric Pollard sitting in over there on keyboards, usually the drummer in Retribution Gospel Choir, a band yes. that you guys have toured with. Yeah, yeah. Eric's the drummer in that band. So we mentioned before, you guys don't talk much about it in interviews, but, but you're both spiritual people. How does that play into your music? Well, I mean, it, the boring answer is is that the same as anyone else. I mean, I think spirituality or religion sort of defines for each individual like who they think they are and who everyone else is and why am I here? Why do I get up in the morning? To me, those are those are the core of why you make music as well. And and so, again, the boring answer is it just sort of is a natural thing. And I think everybody, when they create, draw draw upon their perception of who they are and what the world is and what another person is. And, but it always uh, strikes me as kind of weird. You know, indie underground rock, which is supposed to be about no rules, no restrictions. No rules. Open oh, everything. Man. But, you know, Wild. if you dare to talk about Christianity or your beliefs at all, oh, no, now you're branded. I mean, but seriously, some, you know, Pedro <laughs> the Lion, yeah. great indie band. Totally. Yeah. He's pretty religious. Yeah. And even Michael Girard from The Swans, I've had mm. really great... Intense spiritual, intense spiritual relations. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that too. But, spiritual but, relations. But, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, there's... Most musicians are I mean, not everybody agrees on... I don't want to call it that, maybe. Maybe the basics, but. but I think everybody has a sense of something more than themselves. Hmm. You know, and I think that's kind of yeah, what it you is. Yeah, can't, you can't really play music without having a little bit of a humility for something, something that's a little bigger than, more beautiful than you think. One of the reasons I think that it doesn't come up a lot, because I don't think you're really super overt about it, but there was the beautiful Christmas EP in 99, which I think... It's fairly religious. Everyone I've ever given that record to is like, that's my favorite Christmas record of all time. Here for us A humble birth The Son of God Descends to earth, take the long way around the sea. Was a little bit of a stretch in terms of okay, we're sort of putting this out there. Not really. We had, well, we had done a single. Someone asked us to do a. A Christmas song for a single, and mm-hmm. a year later, someone asked us to do something for a radio thing in Holland, and so we we had sort of gathered up a few and had dipped our toes in it, so to speak. And oh, this, this Christmas song thing goes pretty well. Maybe we should do a an EP. So we finished huh, it everybody up. Everybody does a Christmas record. Yeah, That's yeah, pretty safe, singles, isn't it? <laughs> right. You're not well, stepping we, on any yeah. toes or freaking anybody out with that. Yeah, and you don't, you know, it's a nice opportunity to take your ego out. It's a great CD to give place. to families I, I, I and friends. I think the difference, though, Mimi, is that I think in, in the indie world at the time, if there was Christmas records coming out, they were sort of tongue-in-cheek tongue right, or a little right. bit. Yeah, that, I guess that is the, maybe the... Ours is, I would say, pretty sincere. People are afraid to be sincere about that i don't know as much as it's it's in everybody we, we just don't like talking about it i want to go back to the <laughs> devil side though i want to talk about the song witches what an extraordinary tune both lyrically and musically that wonderful eruptive uh, neil young guitar solo and then you know what are you talking about the witches in the bedroom and beating them off with a baseball bat and then you're going to start talking about al green which yep. if i'm not mistaken is a line stolen from cool keith right <laughs> yeah that's a cool keith line i just couldn't get out of my head i just love that tune but uh, yeah, I don't know. The song is sort of just little true little true stories about witches and dogs and true stories and witches are words that usually don't go together, though. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Second verse is a true story. I, as a kid, I uh, as kids do sometimes, you get up and you don't, you know, oh, I don't, I can't sleep. So you go and tell your mom and dad that you can't sleep. So and my dad obviously was a little annoyed, wanted to get rid of me. He said, "What's going on? Why are you Why are you up?" Well, um, uh, there's, uh, there's, a, there's witches flying around my room. <laughs> kind of reaching for a quick answer. And my dad, without a, skipping a beat, took, took this plastic bat and said, well, here, hit him with this. <laughs> Go to sleep. So I went back, dragging, this, dragging the plastic wiffle ball back what to my da- room feeling stupid. What are dads for? I think we have to hear that song, right? Yeah, let's do we it. We got to hear that. That yeah. was my ulterior motive there. <laughs> 
That's Witches from Low here in the Sound Opinion studio. Alan Sparhawk, Mimi Parker, Steve Garrington, Eric Pollard. Thanks so much for coming in, guys. Oh, this has been great. Thanks Thank you so us. much. Thanks, guys. We've got more of Low in the studio at soundopinions.org. And we want to invite you to share your sound opinions on the air. Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, Greg and I review the new album by Danger Mouse. Then I drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRegatis, and you're listening to Theme of Rome from the new album by Danger Mouse and Daniele Lupi called Rome. Danger Mouse, a.k.a. Brian Burton, came out of the DJ scene in the 90s, went on to uh, collaborate with a number of artists. First of all, producing records for the likes of Gorillaz and Beck, but also a full-fledged recording artist in his own right, most notably with Gnarls Barkley and CeeLo Green, that huge hit Crazy, most recently with James Mercer of The Shins and another group called Broken Bells. Now he's teaming up with this Italian composer to pay homage to the Italian soundtrack music of the 60s, specifically that of Ennio Morricone. We're talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West, very evocative mood music, setting the atmosphere for those spaghetti westerns of that era. Going to the point of even using some of the same musicians and singers that Morricone employed in the 60s, as well as the recording studio. Now, they brought in a couple of ringers to help them record this album, specifically Jack White, formerly of the White Stripes on vocals, and then also Nora Jones. Let's listen to a song from Rome. It's called The Rose with a Broken Neck on Sound Opinions. the rose with a broken neck from the new danger mouse album rome on sound opinions greg i love this album i love it to pieces partly it's in my blood all right i'm from my people are from naples i gotta love this kind of spaghetti western music but i'll tell you what a missing link here is brian burton when he is going to the university of georgia is obsessed with a band from bristol england called portishead Mm. the trip-hop sound He drops out of the university one class short of getting a degree. He moves to London, and he tries to make his name as a trip-hop DJ. He first gets attention from Warp Records by remixing Portishead. Mm -hmm. I think as much of a tribute to Ennio Morricone, this album is a tribute to Portishead. It's got this soul, this grit that comes from recording in an old church with analog instruments and 80-year-old Italian musicians, okay? Nora Jones is cool on this record. Jack White doesn't even sound like Jack White. He's so into it. The song titles alone tell the story of this imagined movie, The Rose with a Broken Neck, The Gambling Priest. The Matador has fallen. This is absolutely wonderful coffee house, dinner party music, but it transcends that. It's not just ambient background music. It's wonderful pop music that rewards listening. On the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, this is a very enthusiastic Buy It. 
Well, I'm enthused too, Jim. First of all, they did get the details right. I am an absolute sucker for those Morricone soundtracks, and I'm glad that they did such a nice job of evoking that era, right down to getting some of the original players to come back and and perform here. Also, too, the Nora Jones and Jack White collaborations, I was a little worried that the star power there might overwhelm what they were trying to do. But in fact... Their voices are well-suited to this. I mean, Jones is a team player. We've, we know that from the past. She's collaborated with a lot of people, and she fits right in. She allows her voice to become just another texture within these very layered uh, tracks. But so does White. He, he plays along. He gets it. The key for me, though, Jim, it's not just nostalgia. It's not just retro. They're writing great songs here. I think one of the things that's easily missed when we talk about Danger Mouse, we talk about his great production He's also a pretty fair multi-instrumentalist and is evolving into a very good songwriter. I think the songwriting here is the key to this record. I'm going to give it a buy rating as well. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. It's time once again to crank up the Desert Island Jukebox to play a track we cannot live without, and this week it is Jim's turn. Thank you, Greg. You know, we recently did a show uh, on Riot Girl, and we were talking about the bands of that era in the early 90s that were influenced by that movement. There were a couple of great bands that weren't really part of the movement, but they had some of the attitude. L7, wonderful group. Of course, Courtney Love's band, Hole, and another group from Minneapolis that I've never played on Sound Opinions. I'm happy to do it now, Babes in Toyland. This was a trio led by an Oregon native named Kat Bieland. She was friends early on with Courtney Love, who was in an early version of this band. Many people say that Courtney stole much of her shtick from Cat Bieland. The screamed vocals, the ferocious guitar playing, the prom dresses, the look, the style, the attitude. I think Babes in Toyland was its own band. Courtney Love is Courtney Love. They were ferocious, thanks in large part to a wonderful drummer, Lori Barbero. One of the odd things is this intense punk, aggressive noise rock gets signed to a major label in the middle of that alternative feeding frenzy. There's a fine book came out in 1994 called Babes in Toyland, The Making and Selling of a Rock and Roll Band by a uh, Wall Street Journal writer named Neil Carlin, which was really a case study in how punk rock underground bands can get screwed over by the major label system. That having been said, Babes in Toyland leaves a fine musical legacy, and their finest album is the one that came out in 93 called Fontanelle. Do you know what a Fontanelle is? No. It's the soft spot in a baby's skull. Uh They had names like that and songs like this, and it was a very aggressive sound with just little hints of melody underneath. This was their major label debut and the first featuring a wonderful bassist named Maureen Herman, who was also a very fine rock writer. This is where it all came together. They did the Lollapalooza tour that summer, and Babes in Toyland had its moment in the sun and really has not been heard from ever since. A couple more records filtered out. This is the one to remember them by, though. And the song I'm going to play kicks off the Fontanelle album. It's called Bruise Violet. Now, some people say the lyrics here are Cat Bielan's attack on Courtney Love. Cat has denied that, but it might just be because you don't want to get Courtney mad at you. We all know that no good comes of that. In any event, whatever it's about, it's a wonderful song. Here is Babes in Toyland with Bruise Violet on Sound Opinions.
That was Babes in Toyland with Bruce Violet on Sound Opinions, my Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. Sound Opinions Desert Island jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark bourbon. It is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we visit with Mike Watt of the Minutemen talking about one of the greatest albums ever made, Double Nickels on a Dime. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Low was recorded by Mary Gaffney. Our intern is Nick Myers, who, if he was a spaghetti western, would be a fistful of dollars. Our producer, Jason Saldana, he would be Death Rides a Horse. Our other producer, Robin Lynn, she would be the good, the bad, and the ugly. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, he would be God Forgives, I Don't. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Baby, will you call me the moment you get there? New messages. Hi, this is Dan from Oak Park, a longtime listener. Thanks for the long overdue credit to female musicians with the Riot Girl show, but I wish you would have mentioned the pre-Riot Girl pioneers, such as the all-girl garage bands from the 60s, and also later the Runaways. Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill has even called the Runaways an early example of the Riot Girl aesthetic. My favorite example of the early Riot Girl movement was Cheery Bomb by the Runaways. Anyway, thanks for another great show. Can't stay at home. Hey guys, it's uh, Michael out here in the great Pacific Northwest, and I gotta say, an absolutely brilliant episode on Riot Girl. Now, I was a generation removed, but my daughter just traveled the entire arc from beginning to end of that movement, and while I looked at other parents kind of struggling through the teen years, that movement really helped my daughter and I to talk, and whenever... My daughter would come home for one of the Riot Girl shows. We get a chance to sit down and talk about it, and it gave me a chance to introduce her to some of the fierce women musicians of my generation. Once my daughter came home from one of the shows, and I played Tax Free for her by Joni Mitchell. It was so fun listening to this episode and thinking of all the fun times I'd sit and watch the fierce, independent side of my daughter's seed and take root through that movement. Keep up the good work, fellas. Hey, this is Josh calling from New York. Just in response to your Titus Andronicus interview, I I really wish that you hadn't interviewed them and just played their music because I would probably like that band if I hadn't heard the lead singer talk. What a D-bag. It sounded like an interview with Steven Tyler. All of his really, like, lame rock speak. Not at all what you want to hear from the lead singer of a quote-unquote punk band. That's too bad, because now I can't take the music seriously. Anyway, keep up the good work. This is Sam from Guilford, Connecticut. Anyway, I'm calling to let you know that I'm afraid you got punked with the Titus Andronicus interview. That may have looked like Patrick Stickles sitting in front of you, but those of us listening on the radio knew that it was Steve Buscemi. 
pulling a very big prank on you. His voice is completely unmistakable. I guess our um, our aesthetic parameters haven't really changed that much, but no real plan, just kind of got to trust the instincts, you know? Sounds, you know, resonated in a certain way and pursued those ones at the expense of others, and here we are. recommend you close your eyes and listen to the broadcast and, and picture a scene from The Big Lebowski, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So in the future, I think you should probably ask all your guests on the show for their long-form birth certificate. That is now the uh, standard form of identification in the United States. Great show. Take care. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.